This is the Lotox Life Podcast. If all the birds could fly right now, as high as me somehow, they could see all the things I've been dreaming of. These wings of mine flutter inside, they shimmy and they glide, breaking forth, crack the shell from this clockwork light. Hello and welcome to the Low Tox Life Podcast. I'm Alex Stewart, your host, and today is show 254. Today I have a wonderful show for you all about bees. And my guest is the wonderful Doug Purdy. Now, Doug, along with his business partner, Vicky, at the Urban Beehive, maintains, get this, more than 100 beehives on Sydney city rooftops, balconies, backyards, and in community gardens. Uh, He lives literally just down the road from me. I'm also in inner Sydney. And uh, he's a beekeeping teacher and speaker, a past president of the Amateur Beekeepers Association, featured very regularly on TV and has a fabulous new book called Backyard Bees Out uh, that, well, it's actually um, an updated publication with more resources and more up-to-date information. It's awesome. Uh, I have a copy here. And even though I'm not going to be a beekeeper in an apartment setting in the middle floors, uh, as Doug goes into on this episode as to really having to think about how your situation looks and whether that makes you a good candidate for being a good beekeeper. I think that's really important to know. Um, I feel like everyone's just going to be so inspired to connect to the purpose of bees in our beautiful world uh, more through this episode and to also see how we can support local beehives more rather than hitting the middle aisles of the supermarket when you're going to top up if honey is something you enjoy. Uh, I also think it's just a really important thing to explore ethically. A lot of people think that um, we're harming bees by eating honey and I'm always keen to hear different perspectives there. So it's a really, really interesting show and I'm going to hook into that in a little minute. But I just want to remind you, you have now just a few days left to make the most of this month's Oz Climate Winix Air Purifier uh, sponsorship. You have an extra 10% off their already discounted prices over at ozclimate.com.au and that's ausclimate.com.au. Uh, all you have to do is enter Lotox Life in the checkout, or if you're not too sure what size of air filter you need, um, you know, and you really want to have a chat to them, the code is also going to work if you give them a buzz and work through your uh, home situation. Now, do you need an air filter? Is this just another appliance that's not really required? I like to help people by just helping you ask yourself a few questions. And those sorts of questions are things like, have you got good airflow in your home? Have you got potentially mold? Have you got allergens coming from pets that someone in the house isn't too happy about? Maybe you have a few family members that have got sniffles, coughs, asthma, uh, dust mite allergy, Maybe you live near a busy intersection or in a city. Uh, Maybe you do a lot of cooking and pan frying, wok cooking, and you want to keep those VOCs down and particulate matter down. 
Uh, maybe you live on a farm and uh, whether you might be spraying chemical in, in, uh, synthetic inputs uh, or whether your neighbour perhaps is and it might be flowing off into your air, these are some of the candidates for air filtration. So basically, most people will benefit in some way from having an air filter. And uh, you don't necessarily need one in every single room of the house. Uh, You can pop one in the sensitive person's room, that kind of a thing. So like I said, if you're unsure and if you actually just want to have a chat to the team, they're super approachable. I know they've been helping you guys out over the month. I've had some great feedback. Uh, And you can just mention that you heard about them through the Low Tox Life podcast and use Low Tox Life as a verbal code while you're going through what you need. And then they'll help you out over the phone. They're excellent air purifiers. I've got a little compact Winix in our bedroom. And it's a really nice little traffic light system that lets you know whether it's red, orange, or um, blue. Uh, Blue for great quality air at that time. And I notice ours tends to peak mainly when... um, we're changing the sheets, like a lot of dust is flowing around in the air and it'll come back from red to blue in about five minutes after doing something like that or after cooking, same sort of deal. That often puts quite a few uh, uh, different toxins through the air. Um, just the act of cooking uh, changes your air quality and then it just comes straight back down after a few minutes after the cooking stopped. So it's super effective, powerful, tiny little thing. Uh, and it looks good, which I really like because often air filters are big and bulky and quite ugly. So I know that probably shouldn't be something I'm worried about for something that's so functional and helpful to health, but I really like that their air filters are pretty. So there you go. Enjoy the last few days of that discount if you haven't made the most of it yet and enjoy this wonderful discussion with Dr. Uh, Well, he may be a doctor of bees one day, but he isn't just yet (laughs) with Doug Purdy. Enjoy. Hey, Doug, how are you doing? Oh, good morning. I'm good, thanks. I am very excited to have you on the show. Bees are a passion topic for many, and uh, they're obviously very, very important to us. And your beautiful book uh, has been newly uh, put out there with some revisions, which is exciting. Um, can you tell us, just for the people who aren't aware of your work, the book itself, what uh, led you to become interested in bees? Where did, where, where did your passion begin? Yeah, well, I guess the, the passion probably started with food, you know. Um, mm-hmm. So sort of my, my family background is Italian and um, so food's a fairly big part of what we do. Um, and, you know, so I, I got into all sorts of things, cheese making and so on, and, and people had said to me, oh, look, I've got a beehive in the backyard and I, my immediate reaction was sort of horror. Mm. Um, oh wow! So you're a bit of you're a bit of a born again bee lover. Oh, absolutely, yeah. You know, yeah. and and um, anyway, so you know, I, I always thought, no, I got beekeeping, you know, stinging insects. Who wants to be involved in those? That's no fun at all. Um, and then I was reading, you know, um, about how much in trouble bees were all around the world. You mm-hmm. know, and at the time, which is a few years ago now, um, when I first published the book, um, people didn't really talk about that at all. Um, whereas now in Australia, it's quite you know, part of the conversation. And um, anyway, so I started researching. And I thought, you know, gee, this is really important. I like food and bees are important for food because they pollinate so much of it. Mm-hmm. Um, I should do something about this. And so I started getting involved in bees, which led me to become a beekeeper. 
Um, and sort of from there, it just ballooned. And I wrote the book to try and encourage more people to become beekeepers or at least to consider bees and consider how they could help them. Mm. And are you a city man or do you live regionally? I live in the city, so I'm right in the middle of Sydney. Um, yeah. If anybody knows the Coke sign, I'm, I'm quite close to that. Oh, so am I. There you go. Oh, there you go. Yeah, well, I'm, <laughs> I'm in Darlinghurst, so, you know, I'm right in yeah. the middle of everything. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, like remarkably, there's quite a few beekeepers around me, even more now than there was. I then. know. It's really inspiring. Lots of rooftop gardens popping up, all sorts of veggie gardens, community gardens. It's really, um, it, it really just goes to show that, greening up our cities and bringing life back to our cities in the true sense of the word life is a personal responsibility that we can all play a part in. Oh, look, absolutely, you know, and it's it's all become sort of part of, of what I do now. But mm. um, but at the time, you know, I've got a, a local beekeeper, um, George. Unfortunately, George actually only died, died a couple of weeks ago. But oh. um, George, who's a photo of him in the book, um, George had been keeping bees here in Darlinghurst and in Sydney for about 50 years. And wow. um, and so yeah, he he sort of he was a bit of a mentor of mine, and actually gave me my first um, or my second beehive. Mm. Um, so yeah, you know, people have been doing it a long time, but but now if the bees need our help, we really need to get into planting more things for bees. Yeah, and we can't just rely on that older generation knowing how to do it. We've actually got to garner some of that wisdom and take it on younger and younger. Yeah, look, absolutely, you know, and and. Um, it's not just about having to be a beekeeper, but it's about actually thinking about what you're doing in general, you know, making sure that you're not spraying everything that moves. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, and planting things that flower, though, two sort of basic things that you need to do. Yeah, and we'll jump into those in a bit more detail in a sec. But I want to ask you, um, there are obviously a lot of different types of bees, and I know they say you can't have a favourite child, but um, do you have a favourite and a least favourite bee? Oh, look, I don't really have a least favourite bee, but okay. um, I've got some favourites and they're actually not the ones that make honey for us. Mm-hmm. So um, some of the solitary bees are just gorgeous. And um, even here in the heart of the city in Darlinghurst, we get um, blue banded bees, mm-hmm. um, which are a gorgeous little bee with blue bands where the yellow would be yep. on, on their abdomen. Um, and I get them in my, my garden here and, um, and I think it's pretty amazing and wonderful at the same time. Mm. And I love the blue bandit because they do a thing called sonication. Yeah. So um, in order for some things to flower, they need a bee that vibrates the, um, the, the flower so the pollen comes loose. It's called sonification and, um, or buzz pollination. And, and the blue bandit bee is one of those. So you can thank your tomatoes or thank the blue bandit bee for your tomatoes because um, they need buzz pollination. And, and the other bee um, is the teddy bear bee, which is as it sounds like it's this big furry bee. Um, I know the one. They're so cute. Yeah, totally cute. And like I, I very rarely see them, but um, I was on bizarrely on the roof of my of my terrace um, with a vacuum pump. Do we sound? You sound just like my husband does. <laughs> no, well, yeah, okay. On the roof with a vacuum pump, as as you do, and um, and the sound of the vacuum pump. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously it was resonating with this blue banded bee and this blue banded bee came in and sort of came in and buzzed around the vacuum pump for quite a while. Um, not quite long enough for me to get my camera out and get a photo of it because by the time you get your phone unlocked, often these things disappear. But um, I thought it was amazing that, again, here I am in the middle of the city and there's, mm. you know, this, this teddy bear bee and they're both absolutely gorgeous. 
Yeah, there's a lot of life around here. We've just recently moved to Potts Point and, um, and I have to say, uh, I, I don't know whether it's our proximity to the botanical gardens or the amount of wonderful mature trees in the area still, but there's a lot of life around here um, to harness, to cultivate. It's, um, it's beautiful. The birds, I love it all. Yeah, look, it, it, it's pretty amazing to think that we are right in the middle of the city and mm. there's so much here. Um, mm. The other place that I find amazing early in the morning is Centennial Parklands. Yeah. Um, so Centennial Parklands, for those who don't know, is a massive park here in Sydney. Um, but it's also very, very urban. It's like very close to the city. And um, you get all sorts of wildlife in there, from their powerful owls, which are just amazing, um, to, to oh, you, you name it, you know, mm. including older people. Mm. But it's, a, it's an amazing place. And it's amazing there's all this wildlife existing in the city. Um, and um, it just needs a bit of help from us. Yeah, it does. And you, you mentioned just before solo bees. So obviously some bees like to hive and some are um, like little smooth operators. They just like to do it their own way. Um, yeah. How can we look after each different type? I mean, obviously tending to hives and, and being a part of those sorts of communities is the obvious thing there but um our solo bees what do they need well this is the interesting thing right because when people think about bees they think instantly of honey and the honey bee so you know a bee that's got red and black stripes on it mm. um but they're actually only a minor player they have to be mm. a big player because they do most of the pollination for most of our food but um but the solitary bees like in australia there's let's say two thousand yeah ones. It goes up and down all the time because they find more and recategorize others. But so there's 2,000 different bees out there that most people have never heard of. And, um, and most of those bees live by themselves. So um, what I mean by that is that they might live together with a few friends, like an apartment block, <laughs> but, um, but they live, you know, in an individual little burrow and, um, and make a couple of drops of honey for their young and, um, but at the same time are wonderful pollinators. Yeah. And a lot of those solitary bees are symbiotic, so they will exist for a particular type of plant. Mm -hmm. um, so th there is the important thing, right? We're running around chopping all this stuff down constantly and we need to put it back because otherwise those bees are under threat. Um, so it's really important to remember the solitary bees and remember that um, they're just as important as every other bee, even though we don't see them that often. Mm. So um, we literally, I think something really important that you said there is we're chopping these down, we need to bring things back. And the reason is, is because they literally exist because that plant exists and vice versa. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. You know, and so things like, you know, banksia trees, mm. uh, which take a long time to grow and get chopped down, which I find a bit irritating. Um, those trees exist and are, are habitat for particular solitary bees, mm -hmm. in particular the rotting branches off them so sorry that was my it's all right sorry you put your phone on mute and you what happens to the best of us that's right mm. so we'll, i'll recap that i guess um so you know the the, the thing is things like banksia trees which we see around city get chopped down all the time really frustrating um they are habitat for particular um not solitary bees so mm. you know it, this stuff is really really important and mm -hmm. um and uh, it's, it's people just don't think about it, you know. Until I became a beekeeper, I wasn't aware of what was built around me and what was being lost. Yeah. And now every time I see something develop, I get more and more frustrated because uh, mature trees are chopped down and replaced with stubby little things that aren't going to do anything. Mm. And I often think that words that we use in the English language just 
once you actually understand biodiversity and the importance of it, they become uh, just the opposite of their actual meaning to the modern context. So development, for example, um, would insinuate that something extra good, like something new and progress is happening. But development is actually counter to what we need often. Um, we need to start developing biodiversity again. Yeah, look, absolutely. Um, and I get really frustrated when I see some you know, massive old trees being chopped down. Uh, mm-hmm. A couple of years ago, uh, out near the airport here in Sydney, they were doing some road expansion. And um, these paper barks that were like, you know, two metres in diameter around the base, massive paper barks, which are awesome habitat trees, mm. uh, were chopped down yeah. because the road needed to get wider. And I understand that infrastructure needs to change but um, or needs to grow sometimes, but um, it's a shame that things are lost that will never be replaced. Mm, absolutely. It's heartbreaking. And so let's have a look at that. Um, when we think about the future and we think about bees, what are some of the most alarming stats that can help us all connect to a, a greater sense of urgency around being a part of the solution for, with bees? Well, interestingly, therein lies the problem. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, bees have not been researched very much remarkably uh, until they're at risk. And yeah, so people don't know that much about them. Like lots mm-hmm. and lots and lots of research is being done, but people don't really know a lot of it's inconclusive. So there's, there's not a lot of hard stats about what's going on. For example, um, here in Australia, um, we don't do an annual colony loss survey, which they do in other parts of the world. Wow. So we don't know how many managed colonies, this is only managed colonies, how many managed colonies are lost to disease. No one knows. So um, it's, it's quite uh, just the biggest belief that we don't do that. Um, so... That's uh, insane have, when bees are such an integral part of our food system and we're not researching that. No. <laughs> oh, my God. So other parts of the world, they do these coloss, colony mm-hmm. loss surveys, um, and we just don't do them here. Mm. Uh, and the other thing that's happening here, um, which is, I guess, a part of the problem, is that our, um, our um, agriculture is changing. So what's happened is other parts of the world have had terrible drought, as we have had but ours hasn't been as bad. So mm-hmm. almonds, for example, um, almonds and some other nuts uh, are grown massively in, in California and there's mm. been huge, huge um, droughts over there. So that has moved to Australia mm-hmm. and our water licences have enabled it to happen. And so they've planted more almonds than we have bees to pollinate and are using water from all over the country bizarrely can be sold and used in where the almonds are grown because they need about six gallons of water per almond kernel. Um, So we have this weird problem where they have all of these almonds planted, not enough bees to pollinate the trees that are growing, and no one knows what's happening to the bees that we have in the country. So um, it's just, it's really quite strange that these things happen. Mm. And, um, And, you know, I'm not saying that big agriculture is the problem, but I'm saying that it's just weird that we aren't doing the things we should be doing to see how bad the problem is going to be. Absolutely. And the thing that blows my mind with that is if, say, the almond eater or the almond milk drinker or, you know, what it's fine to love your different things that you enjoy, but if you really connected to the truth of the matter, yeah. you, would, you would take personal responsibility and think, okay, well, cow's milk doesn't agree with me or I have a belief around it or whatever, 
Um, almond milk is obviously way worse than I thought it could be, was going to be. Uh, so actually, no, it's okay. I'll just drink oat milk or whatever else. But until people get the facts and really, um, like we found a wonderful biodynamic place to source our almonds from when we do eat them. And they have tons of rainfall and it's a great place for almonds to grow and the bees are happy and it's a great symbiotic situation. But if we can't get things from there, then we can't become a part of the market response, if you know what I mean. So we're starting to actually produce foods because there are market trends instead of educating people about what should be trendy based on what can grow where in the most natural way possible. And that just blows my mind that we are headed in this direction with everything we know about climate and extinction at this point. Look, it, it's, it's absolutely, um, you know, the problem. And, and people just, uh, there's this disconnect going on, you know, and, and almonds are a really good example of it mm. uh, because almonds are actually pretty bad when it comes to how they're growing. Um, almonds are the single biggest livestock movement in Australia. So it's right. actually happening right now. Um, beehives from all over the country get trapped tra- down to the almonds for pollination because the way almonds are growing is basically you plant trees in a desert, mm. uh, use Roundup to kill everything, mm-hmm. so you've only got the trees. Mm. And um, so there's nothing to support the pollinators, but almonds have to be pollinated. Mm. So all the beekeepers then truck all their almonds down on semi-trailers, sorry, their, their bees down on semi-trailers to the almonds for the almond pollination event. And it's a big event, you know, and it's a big income stream for beekeepers and, and there's all sorts of economics going on. But it's pretty outrageous, really, that they're growing in that way. Mm. Um, and the trouble is, yeah, you can try and find the solution. So you will find, you know, a niche, um, a niche biodynamic farm that's growing almonds, as you were talking about. But how many almonds can they grow? Yeah. And how big is the need? And I guess with a lot of agriculture, that's the problem is that it's um, it's very hard to feed people uh, without intensive agriculture and intensive agriculture is dam- damaging. So what do you do, staff? I, I don't know. It is tricky. And I think I had this uh, epiphany when I was just chatting to someone in my Facebook community group years ago when I first started my page and Um, I had done my research around uh, meat, for example, many, many years ago, horrified by factory farming, then started to connect as a local book butcher that was the kind of the same on the same level as me. And we'd found regenerative farming and different forms of agriculture because personally, I do better on an animal protein and veg kind of mix of diet. And, um, and so I just wanted to do my best within that context to source well and, and so we were chatting on Facebook about, uh, I think it was actually beef. There was beef in a recipe. Um, and we t- I was talking about grass-fed and pasture-raised. And so obviously you would want to source meat that was grass-fed and pasture-raised, gave all the reasons why, upsetting, you know, cows' livers with grains and all that kind of stuff. Anyway, this woman in Canada said, that's easy for you to say. You live in Australia where that's possible, but nine months of the year here, they can't eat grass. And it just kind of, it just a simple comment on Facebook made me go, well, why on earth are we raising cows in that part of the world? Yeah. You know, it's really just that simple. We should be looking at topography and starting to, and rainfall and starting to think, okay, well, these things will do well there naturally. And actually farmers be the market trend, not consumers dictating what farmers need to do more of. Um, It just seems... 
so counterproductive, the system we have right now. Yeah, and, and I guess it's, it will take a lot to change this Titanic. Mm, yeah. Um, you know, and hopefully it doesn't hit an iceberg um, mm. because, yeah, it, it, the way it's going, it, it's going to reach a point at some stage when the, the system's not going to work anymore. Yeah. Um, and I don't know what we do then. But I guess it's like a lot of things. The whole world seems to be heading towards this crescendo at the moment. You know, off, there's a off. lot of crescendo vibes, aren't there? Oh, absolutely. You know, and and who knows where it's where where, where the journey is going to end. Mm. Uh, but so many things need to change because um, we're doing a lot of damage that that um, we really need to undo or, or somehow or slow down or something. Yeah. And can we talk about the other uh, frightening threat to bees? Uh, in what is sprayed, uh, both on agriculture and then in our own backyards and homes? Yeah, look, it's an interesting problem. Um, so if we talk about agriculture first, so so my brother-in-law's a farmer mm-hmm. and um, and I, I learned, have been learning a lot about farming from him and understanding, you know, basically the way it works. And, yeah, you know, it's really interesting because, um, and there's going to be all these people throwing daggers at me in a minute, um, <laughs> The thing is that, that when you think about farming and you think about intensive farming, which we, we need to do to feed ourselves because we can't we can't feed ourselves otherwise, um, and then you go, okay, well, spraying Roundup's bad because it just damages the or, or spraying you know, a herbicide is bad because it damages what's going on in, in the soil and and so forth and so on. But of course, by by using a herbicide rather than tilling the soil, which is what they used to do before, you don't lose as much topsoil. Mm. So when you till it to kill the weeds, of course, it brings everything up. You lose moisture and you lose you use topsoil. Whereas if you use a herbicide, you don't because you're not tilling the soil to to um, to uh, destroy the weeds that are there. So in that context, a herbicide could be good. Um, and I don't know whether it is or it isn't, mm. but it's very interesting because I hadn't really thought about um, maybe damage that our old style farming techniques did that um, if they're applied on a, a large sort of scale would actually do major damage, mm. whereas the things that they're doing now are, are different and and, um, and might be using chemicals that, that might be better, and I, I'm not the judge of that. So mm. personally, I think spray is terrible, but, but uh, <laughs> it's interesting, right? So it's just an interesting take on what's going on that I haven't well, really thought and, about. And I really like that you're bringing in a, um, a, a farmer's thinking on this and reasoning for their own decision making because unless we actually all start to talk city peeps and farming peeps together um it'll just be us and them and that's ridiculous if we want to try and create solutions Um, yeah and and and, you know i mean i've I've spent time in in the machinery now and understand how it all works a bit better but it's fascinating you know and and so the vision I have of how things are sprayed, for example, is this huge cloud coming out the back of the tractor, which is the one that you see. Yeah. Uh, but the reality is that you know the the machines that do the spraying now are run by computers and and just spray what they need where they need it and so forth. So it's a whole different um, perspective, and that's not driven by the the need to be better. It's driven by the economics because mm. the chemicals are expensive. So they want to use as little as possible. So they've developed technology that sort of spot applies it, which is interesting. Um, but yeah, if we if we walk away from the farming for a bit a minute and walk into our own backyards, um, all that most people need to do is look under the kitchen sink mm. and see how many sprays they've got to kill things. Mm. Or go to your favourite big hardware store um, and walk down the kill things aisle, <laughs> and it's just astounding. There are so many sprays 
to kill so many things. Um, mm. It's no wonder that, that we're doing damage to the environment. And that's the big risk, right? So it's not just bees, it's all sorts of things we need to look after, all sorts of pollinators and non-pollinator insects that need our support. Yeah. And, um, and the answer isn't to spray everything to kill it. Mm. Um, the answer is to really look at the way that things grow yeah, and in a small scale in our backyards, we can control it. So, you know, there's no need to spray everything. Um, nature actually has a system. We just have to allow it to happen. And the way we allow it to happen is just to be patient. Mm. And the predators will come along to eat those pests that are, you know, sort of, that are eating our veggies. Um, nine times out of ten, the system will, will, will balance itself out. You just have to let it balance itself out rather than reaching for the spray to kill the thing in the first place. Mm. And there's some really interesting research. If you look at um, a couple of incredible regen farmers, Peter Andrews and uh, Charles Massey, who have written about reconstructing the kinds of ecosystems that balance each other out. And then all of a sudden you don't have plagues of locusts and you don't have um, things coming because the the system is um, built to be resilient to um, things and, and weeds are actually often a sign that there is an imbalance and if you correct the imbalance in the ecosystem, then you actually fix your weed problem instead of having to kill them all the time. It's yeah, really absolutely. amazing. Yeah. yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a, um, a dairy farmer here in, in Sydney um, and um, on his farm he, you know, he, he uses completely different practices to his neighbour. Mm. And um, what's fascinating is you'll see photos of, um, of frost time and his fields have not got frost on them. Mm. that his neighbours do, and it's because of all, of, of all the, the bioactivity going on in his soil that it's warming the soil and there's no frost. Mm. And it's like it's sort of a bit of a hello moment and you go, well, that's really interesting, you know, that the soil's actually alive and next door the soil is dead. Mm. So that's got to be better. Yeah, yeah, really does. <laughs> Just a great example. Great example. And so um, how do we stop being so addicted to spraying everything and killing it in the um, home context? Because that, I mean, that for me is I remember I used to spray, spray fruit flies and I'm talking like 15, 20 years ago, but I think back to that and I just think poor little fruit flies, they didn't really hurt anyone. They didn't, you know, they're just a bit annoying on my ceiling in the kitchen. But Yeah, like, oh, those, those damn vinegar flies that you just can't get rid of. That, oh, the- cannot. Yeah. yeah, but it's really, fine. like yeah. spraying them, what on earth is that going to do? Precisely nothing other yeah. than put harmful chemicals into my home. Well, that's just it, you know, and, and um, it's really interesting because, uh, you know, I, I have these sorts of conversations with my friends. Um, you know, back in the days when we used to have face-to-face conversations, um, you'd talk about these things, you know, and, and go, okay, you know, you've got the pest controller coming around to spray your house so that nothing moves. Mm-hmm. Why? And yeah. it's because oh, that's what we did last year. And it's like, well, well, you know, you don't need to do that. You're not going to get, you know, there's not going to be, you might get a red back. Um, you know, you might get the occasional thing that's going to be a problem, but it's not actually a problem. And um, although Australia might be full of all sorts of toxic um, creatures living in your backyard, you don't need to kill them all. You know, they're there for a reason. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, I think it's just habit, you know, it's just habit. And people need to break that habitual cycle and maybe also not be in so much of a hurry Mm. Um, or be prepared if they're growing vegetables, be prepared to sacrifice some of it. Yeah. So, you know, if you grow cabbage and it gets eaten by cabbage moth, 
Mm. Um, you know, there's things you can do without spraying that will reduce it, but you're going to get a bit of cabbage damage. Mm. Um, that's a bit of a tongue twister. <laughs> and um, it's not a drama, you know, so the cabbage has got some holes in it. It's not going to kill you. Yeah. You've probably eaten a Brussels sprout with a worm in it and not realised. Yeah. So, you know, it's, it doesn't really matter. It's, it's all good. It's all part of the system. Yeah, I think it's so important to to start to see that signs of life are actually a real positive in your food instead of the <laughs> right. It's like, oh, good, I got a caterpillar. Yeah, <laughs> we get excited. We get yeah. excited genuinely because it means everything's living and yeah. and thriving and, um, and that means that food's going to be live and thriving for us. Yeah, well, it's got to be better for you. You know, it's got to be better for you not not being covered in in, in goodness knows what. You know, yeah. um, and or, or you know, been absorbed into into the food. I mean, who knows? I, I think going back to the research thing about what's affecting bees, I don't think people really know what half this stuff does because it hasn't mm. been around long enough. Yeah. And one of the biggest issues with bees and insects in general is that um, the chemicals are advancing at a huge rate. Mm. Yeah discovering more and more chemicals and no one really knows what that does. So there was a big bee kill in America a couple of years ago where um, the farmers, in, in the need to be more efficient in farming, they do this stuff called tank mixing where they mix more than one chemical together and spray it at once. And so the chemicals that they had individually weren't a problem, so they weren't going to kill the insects. Mm-hmm. When they sprayed them, then they mixed them together in the tank and then sprayed the whole lot in one go. It was like Armageddon and so many thousands of hives were wiped out um, that wouldn't have been affected by the chemicals otherwise um, because this became this super toxic mixture that just killed everything. Mm. And um, and that's part of the problem is that there's advances in this technology that we don't really understand and I don't think we understand in the long term what it means. Mm. No, I, I don't think so either. And I think if you look at just antibiotics as a great example and the overuse of that, and now we're becoming so resistant to so many of them, bigger bugs, yeah. more scary bugs that we can't kill quite so easily are starting to develop. Um, obviously, when we come in and create man-made killing things, something else goes wrong somewhere else. Even though we have the best of intentions in one area, the, the flow-on effect is often a negative one, unfortunately. Yeah, oh, absolutely. And, you know, research is done, but, like, you might, it might take three or four years to, to develop and approve an insecticide, but it might take 30 years to work out what it does, you know, and you can, you can sort of go back to the DDT days and the, and the mm. effect on the eagles, you know, when they worked out that it was the eagles eating the roadkill that were affecting this, their eggshells. I mean, who would have joined that together? Mm. Um, but it's, it happens, you know, these things have effects. Yeah. Um, okay, so let's talk about... Um what we can act, let's start being part of the solution. I think we need to go positive now. Oh, really? <laughs> Before everyone's just devastated. <laughs> um, what is happening, uh, because you would obviously be chatting to all sorts of people all the time, when it comes to bee protection, care, agriculture, is there anything positive on the horizon or things that are changing that you're noticing uh, that are going to be good for the bees? Yeah, look, absolutely. I think people, you know, in the last sort of few years, people have become um, very aware of what they can change. And interestingly, economics is part of it, right? So, if you again, if we go back to the farming side of things, mm. um, economics is part of the, is part of the solution because people want their crop yields to be bigger because it's more economical to produce. 
And so pollination is a big part of that. Yeah. And um, research has been done in America where they plant, um, like they'll take fields and plant alternate fields of wildflowers mm-hmm. that bring in all the natural pollinators and provide them food in between crops that meant that there was more pollinators in the environment to pollinate the commercial crops being grown. Wow. So, yeah, really interesting stuff, right? So there's all sorts of things like that being done. And overseas um, in, in Europe, uh, because of the other parts of the world seem to, be, seem to be ahead of the game, we're catching up. We always seem to be catching up. Um, they're doing things like planting the verges um, of the roads around farms, you know, an area that normally just gets slashed, mm. um, and they're planting that with wildflowers. Mm. Um, because they don't have to they don't have to slash it to start off with, so it saves everybody a bit of work. Yeah. Um, and the wildflowers are self-perpetuating once they get pollinated, but they provide habitat and food for all sorts of beneficial insects. Mm. So there's things like that happening all over the place, which are just wonderful. And some of those things happening here in Australia too, but overseas the scale is much, much greater. Um, and then, you know, I think people are a lot more aware now of the, of insects and what they need. And so people are starting to ask the questions. I mean, you just need to go to a, a big nursery um, and you can see in the nurseries that they now have, you know, bee-friendly seeds. Mm. Um, so people are thinking about planting for, for bees or for pollinators. And you've got to think about not just bees, you've got to think about pollinators, you know, yeah. or beneficial insects. It's, it's a bigger sphere than just bees. Um, that all can do without help by just planting a few things that flower. Mm. Um, and so that's the, the biggest single change people can make is plant things that flower and have things flowering all year round, mm-hmm. which is a bit tricky. That yeah. can be done. Um, so that you've got, uh, you know, one or two or three things flowering all year round, so there's always food available for, for the insects. Mm. And so if someone had to think about their local area, wherever they're tuning in from around the world, <laughs> to do that, what kind of Google search would you um, embark upon? Oh, wow. Okay. I mean, whatever you search, <laughs> is going to be, you're going to get 10 million results. Yeah, I know. But it's, I just always think the lo- the art of a good long-form search is, you right. know, to get to what you actually want to find is a good one. Oh, look, I mean, you can just start off with, you know, pollinator-friendly plantings in your mm-hmm. area or something. Um, yeah. Often often uh, council nurseries or, you know, the local associate sort of council or whatever the equivalent is wherever you are, um, that they will have nurseries of local plants Mm-hmm. And those local plants are often a good place to start awesome. uh, because, you know, they'll, they'll have the local version of whatever um, that grows perfectly in your little microclimate mm. um, that often will be flowering when it needs to. So, you know, here in Australia, a lot of our natives uh, flower in winter mm-hmm. and they're perfect, obviously, because they, they suit our environment and they flower in winter. So they're Yeah, in, that's they're, the design. Yes, exactly right. Mm. Yeah, but, there, but there are other options too. So um, you have to be careful using introduced seeds, but a lot of the herbs and um, and sort of leafy greens and so forth flower um, prolifically and flower really well for, for pollinators and can be grown in winter and so on. So um, there's all sorts of options. Um, mm-hmm. The other thing you need to do is look at where you are and whether you've got a microclimate. So, you know, where I am, I've got a... I've got a um, sort of a rooftop garden where I am and mm-hmm. um, and it's a bit of a microclimate. So uh, I get things flowering there during winter that I wouldn't get flowering in other parts of Sydney. Mm. Um, and so you need to look at your climate a little bit and see what's, what's going on in your backyard or balcony and what can withstand the wind and, and, you know, the other things that nature's going to throw at it. But there's always something that will work. There is. And I think a lot of people get upset. They bring a few plants home from the nursery and then they die the next week and they think, okay, I can't grow things. 
And actually it's, it's like getting to know a newborn. Like you actually yeah. do have to do the work to assess and, and um, observe. And it's going to take a couple of years before you know what's really going to thrive there and not. Yeah, well, the thing is to ask the questions, right? Yeah. So you know, when you buy your plants, go somewhere where they can give you advice. Mm. So um, often if you just head off to the local hardware store, there's not going to be any advice. So go somewhere where they've got the knowledge that can help you choose something that's going to last on your, on your, your balcony. Mm-hmm. Um, and also ask questions about what you're buying. So a lot of the plants you can buy are actually pre-sprayed with systemic pesticides mm-hmm. to make them look nice. Yeah. Which is, <laughs> I know, it's just like, what? Um, so, so what they do is they, they, they use systemic oh. insecticides and what that means for those who don't know is that the whole plant becomes toxic to anything that might chew on it. And they do that so they look nice so that you're more likely to buy them. But those plants, of course, will kill anything that, that eats it or eats the pollen or nectar or whatever because mm. it's toxic. So you need to ask the questions about whether they've been treated with a systemic pesticide as well. Great. Sure not, that not is a great poison, You know, it's like it's madness. That is madness. I mean, you literally, out of the goodness of your heart and desire to do something for the planet, I'm going to get flowering plants and we'll bring them home. And if they've been sprayed with toxins, you're going to kill bees. Great. Totally. It's like there's someone <laughs> up there, someone up there going, how can I make this as difficult as possible? I know we'll make the plants toxic. You know, it just, it's insanity. You have to laugh or you would cry. But totally. You know, it's just insane. It really is insanity. I don't, I don't understand. But, um, but yeah, there you go. Mm. And so... So we're excited about plants. We're thinking about wildflowers in our local area and how we can get a few onto our verges, how we can get a couple of pots on the balcony, whatever you have where you are. Um, what about someone who's excited about actually keeping bees? Um, yeah, well, there's it, it a couple of things there. So, like, bees aren't for everybody. Mm. So what I, I like to suggest to people, um, get along to a local bee club. They're everywhere. It sounds nerdy. There's no secret handshakes. Just get along to the bee club. <laughs> Um, well, now that know. I know I'm down the road from you, up the road from you, rather, I'm going to I'm gonna find out if you have a secret bee club. Yeah, well, yeah, there's, yeah, <laughs> yeah, there's actually, well, there's one. I started, actually started the bee club in the area that we live in um, awesome. some years ago. Um, but it, there's, plenty, there's bee clubs everywhere. Get along to a bee club um, and experience bees. Mm. So, you know, we, we run beekeeping courses as part of the business that I run with a business partner. And, and um we get people come along to the courses who are very, very excited by the whole idea of keeping bees, but realise that bees aren't for them. Mm. Once they get near them, they're terrified, you know, and so it's not the right sport for them. They should be doing something else. So experience them first because it's Mm. a commitment. Once you get a beehive, you know, you can't just turn it off. Yeah. Um, You know, it's a living thing. So experience them first and, and get some education, do a bee course somewhere so that you understand what you're in for and how to look after them. Great tip. Um, so that's the important thing, right? Make sure you know what you're doing. Because bees, there's a, there's a whole lot of um, regulatory requirements around keeping bees because they're considered livestock. So, Oh, um, wow. Gonna, I didn't know yeah, that. Yeah, they are actually livestock. Hmm. So you've got to actually um, make sure you're looking after them. It's really important because they can get disease. You can then communicate to all the other bees mm. around you if you don't look yeah. after them. So a lot, a lot of um, responsibility with keeping bees. Um, and I got a bit sidetracked off the original point of the question, which was how can you get started in beekeeping? But, <laughs> but um, you know, so make here, are sure all the, here are all the terrifying things that could go wrong, don't and you? That's right. <laughs> yeah, well, it's true though, right? But, I mean, like, look, just make sure they're for you. It's the most mm. important thing. You I don't want to impact them and then find out that they're you know, um, get, get some experience. So get along to a bee club, do a bee course, 
before you buy anything so that you know what's for you. Um, and then once you've done all of those sort of things, and at the same time, if you do a B course, if it's a good B course that includes practical, um, the, they'll get some advice about whether bees are actually suitable for your location. So, mm -hmm. you know, if I was living in an apartment block and I want to put bees in my balcony, um, I don't think it's a good idea. People try, but it's probably not the best location. It's not the best location for the bees if it's too high because they've got to fly a long way. And it's not the best location if you've got a neighbouring balcony because at night time when it's getting dark, the bees are returning to the hive and they will see the lights of your neighbour's house and think it's the sun and fly towards them and, um, you know, then your neighbours meet your bees a bit more personally than they would otherwise. What and a great way to make friends in the neighbourhood. Oh, it's great for neighbourly <laughs> relations. So, yeah, you know, so not every location is suitable either mm -hmm. and, and hopefully the bee course or the bee cup can help you sort some of those things out. Now, once you've ticked off all those, those boxes, so, you, you know, your backyard's going to be okay, you know what you're doing sort of, um, you've got some ideas, then it's time to embark on it and get some gear and away you go. And when it comes to buying the gear, um, my personal preference is to buy Australian-made gear. You can mm -hmm. buy it. Um, what's, it's weird. It's, it's like everything, you know, people want to do the best for their bees and they'll go into a bee shop and buy a beehive. Um, that's the right price and looks good. But unfortunately, it's made somewhere overseas. Or American wood, well, or it's actually, yeah. no, it's actually made usually made um, in in um, in yeah China or Pakistan, basically. Mm -hmm. Interesting. And the timber comes from New Zealand. Mm -hmm. So if you think about the the uh, embedded carbon there, this timber is shipped from New Zealand to China or Pakistan and milled, and then shipped all the way back to Australia again. Right. And then you put your bees in it. Mm -hmm. So you probably ruined everything that you've done by putting your bees in stuff that comes from overseas because of the embedded carbon that's in it. So buy locally made gear, it's there, support the local guys um, and put some bees in it, which you can buy locally and away you go. I mean, it's not that part of it's actually quite simple. It's all the stuff leading up to it. that's common. Yeah, got it. Um, yeah. Bees aren't for everybody. So if you can't have bees, then um, think about doing things like, well, first of all, the, the, there's two sorts of bees here. So we're, I'm talking about, you know, the stingy bees, the, the mm -hmm. Euro European honeybee, um, which are the ones that make most of the honey. There's also native bees. So there are social native bees, not in, in the whole of the world or the whole of Australia, only in certain parts of Australia can you get them. But the, the social natives, which make a very small amount of honey, might be better for your backyard than the European honeybees. Mm -hmm. So there are a couple of different directions you can go in, in there. Well, let's say you can't keep bees at all that you want to support them, then go down the garden group and plant things. Yeah. So, you know, we've had, um, we've got bees on a lot of buildings in Sydney and mm -hmm. um, one of the locations, there's an apartment block that's like 40 storeys tall or something next to it. Wow. And they've had bees up on level 27 mm. foraging on the gardens that they've got up there. So even if you're in a high building, having flowering plants can be good. How brilliant. Yeah, I know. It's amazing, right? They fly a long way. That's incredible. Um, and you mentioned honey. Uh, sometimes people think, are we doing mean things to the bees by taking their honey? Oh, Can excellent you... question. Yeah. Look, there's a lot of stuff out there. Um, so uh, there are a lot of people that have got, uh, they take stuff that's happened historically or happens in other parts of the world and think we do it here. Mm. And so I'll run through a couple of those. Yes, please. We're talking about. Mm. So one of the things, things we hear about is that, um, 
beekeepers steal all the honey from bees and then feed them sugar water back again. Mm. And um, I sell honey at farmer's markets sometimes and people will see a honey that started to candy go hard in the jar. We, we stop, it turns from a liquid to a sort of a crystalline substance. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And they'll say, you've put sugar in it, you'd be feeding the bees sugar. Um, and look, in Australia, very few beekeepers would take all the honey from the bees because the bees just make so much honey here. So, mm-hmm. you know, in Australia, we're a very nectar-rich environment. Um, the, the sort of the lowest yield you can expect would be about 50 kilos from your beehive. Wow. And um, here in Sydney, in a good year, which we haven't had for the last couple of years because we've had climate issues, yeah. um, we've had, you know, the most we've had is 170 kilos from one beehive. Wow, like Doug, that's year, crazy. Right? That's insane. Like, what yeah. do you do with all of that? Yeah. So, you know, so we don't, we're not in the situation here in Australia where we take all the honey from bees. Um and we, we always leave honey behind. I don't know any beekeeper that would take it all. So that's the first one. Um, the other ones that you hear about are that beekeepers kill their bees in winter and then get new ones when, when the season starts again. And um, yeah, really interesting. Um, we don't do that in Australia. In fact, I don't think anybody does it anywhere in the world anymore. Mm-hmm. But in, um, in Canada, beekeepers used to do that. Right. And that was because it got very, very cold in Canada and the bees couldn't survive over winter. So they would unbelievably um, euthanize them all um, with cyanide. Oh, my God. Oh, I know. <laughs> and then by, by new ones come spring. Wow. And uh, they, don't do that. they don't do that anymore, but um, that actually did happen, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, so I'll hear that story about uh, people saying that we do that here in Australia and that uh, we don't. It would, the economics it would not make economic sense. No, and this is the unfortunate case of um, headline education where you learn something or you think you've learned something because you've read a headline in an opening paragraph or two or someone's shared something on Facebook and it sounds really terrifying yeah and so you think oh my god of course I'm not going to eat honey I want to be part of the solution (laughs) and and I can understand because that does sound horrifying but we just need to come back to a, a point where we ask broader questions of actual experts in the field who can tell us what's going on in the ground. Because yeah. as you've clearly stated, that's not the case. No, well, I was horrified when I heard mm. that story and and um, did the research. And I actually was in Canada a couple of years ago um, looking at different beekeeping operations and asked the question. Mm. And that's what the answer. So it's actually something that used to happen, but um, hasn't happened for quite some time now. Wow. Um, and the other one that we hear a lot is that we tear the wings off the queen bees. So they can't fly. And that's not true either. Um, so it's it's actually common practice in some parts of the world to clip the wings on bees, on mm-hmm. queen bees, so they can't fly. Um, I don't know any beekeepers that would do that here. Um, and the only exception might be research um, or very, very expensive research bees. So sometimes queen bees are, are bred for um, for genetics mm-hmm. and those bees, they don't want them to fly away. Right. And those might have their wings clipped. But generally speaking, um, beekeepers don't clip the wings on, on queen bees, um, except, except if they're doing research in some special circumstances. So, you know, that's not really true either. Mm. Um, and just back to the honey thing, you know, it's like people often say to us, but you're stealing the bees' food. And, yeah, that's true. I guess we are. The difference here in Australia is the bees make too much honey. Mm-hmm. And they don't know to stop. So um, they're genetically programmed to just keep making honey the whole time. 
So if you put bees in a in a box in a beehive, um, it has a finite size, but it also has uh, insulating properties that so helps the bees keep warmer and more um, comfortable than they would if they were hanging off a tree, mm-hmm. like they would if they were just naturally there. So when they're hanging off a tree, they're exposed to the elements, and they will eat more of the honey that they make because mm-hmm. they need to to keep warm because the mm-hmm. bees will keep the nest at about. Um, you know, let's say 35 degrees Celsius, mm. just for the sake of p- picking a number. It's about that number. Um, so they need to eat honey to keep their, to be vibrating their muscles to keep the nest warm. So if they're exposed, they'll eat more honey than they will if they're inside a beehive. Yeah. Um, and But inside the beehive, they will run out of space if we don't take the honey off. Mm. And then what happens is they don't turn off. So they keep storing more honey and the colony will actually collapse because they will store honey in all the cells they need to raise young in and the hive will decrease in population to the point that it can't support itself any longer and it collapses. So you actually need to take the honey off them to enable to to keep them alive. So honey removal is almost like um, keeping the pressure down, literally. Yeah, it's just part of the management of the bee hive. And and so you have to do that in in order for them to remain with a healthy population Mm. and a healthy population enables them to keep pests and and things at bay, which they wouldn't be able to do if there wasn't enough. And isn't that beautiful that as humans, we've then kind of created this new symbiotic. Oh, gosh. Did the sound just go really funny, Doug? Or was that just me? Huh. Bizarre. I think we're good now. Um, Isn't that beautiful that we have kind of created a symbiotic, a little biodiversity patch us and the bees, helping them thrive um, by beekeeping. Well, absolutely. I mean, and, and the bees are the bees are sort of kind of domesticated, mm. so they're not living in the wild any longer in the in the most part when it comes to the European honeybee, and therefore they rely on us. Mm. And so, just like you might have a, and I hesitate to use the word pet, but just like you might have a pet that really needs you to feed it because you're not going to let your cat go out there and forage. Yeah, um, the bees need us to help them with some things, and and taking the honey off is one of them because they just won't survive if we don't do that. And, and that is nice. very interesting because so, like for example, the vegan movement, and this is from a very well-meaning place, of course, yeah. as most decisions are. Um, they would have been led to believe that we need to stop eating honey because it's hurting the bees where actually because we have domesticated the European honeybee, if we pulled the plug on what we do with those bees, we would literally kill the bees and therefore most of our fruit and veg. Would that yeah, be correct? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, totally. I mean, wow. we manage beehives because um, there's all sorts of diseases that are killing bees mm-hmm. and, um, and we need to manage them to keep them alive. So we're very lucky here in Australia, we're in an island, you know, and so we're yeah. isolated from the biggest thing, which is the feral mite. Mm. And so I don't think we've talked about feral mite, but feral no. mite is a little bug that um, has spread around the entire world. Man has spread it, but it's spread around the entire world. And we're the only continent on earth without this bug. Wow. And varroa lives off the, um, the hemoglyph of the bees, blood of the bees. And like a mosquito spreading malaria, Varroa spreads diseases to bees. Oh. So, so the bee colonies get very sick because the varroa is eating or living off the bees, but it's spreading diseases that make the bees sick as well. And so um, man has created this problem where if 
man wasn't managing the bees, they would disappear mm-hmm. because we have to... Um, there's a few different schools of thought, but generally speaking, you need to use some sort of intervention to help the bees survive the varroa, otherwise they will die. Mm. And of course, we need to eat. So we need to manage the bees to keep them alive so that we can eat. Um, so like it or lump it, we're in the situation where you need to look after managed bees or there won't be any. Now, Australia isn't quite in that position because we don't have varroa, mm. but we keep finding it. So it keeps coming into the country and getting caught at the ports and killed. But sooner or later, it will skip in. Mm. And, um, and when it does, beekeeping in the country will change. Like um, all the feral bees that exist will pretty much be wiped out. Wow. And managed bees will exist. So that has huge ramifications for our food production and everything else because a lot of farmers rely on feral bees for pollination at the moment. Mm. But they will vanish and only uh, managed beehives will exist. Right. But at least that's what's happened pretty much around the world. So you can assume it will happen here. Cheery. So, oh, yeah, terrible thing, you know, and it's all, it's all part of um, importation and um, also our close, how close we are to our Pacific na- uh, neighbours. So mm. um, our Pacific neighbours have varroa mite and some of them are only, you know, I think five kilometres at some points up in Queensland between mm. land and some of the islands that have got varroa. So it's possible for the bees to fly that far. Wow. So there's big issues, you know, and, and um, managing our bees is pretty much the only way to make sure that we still have them. Mm. Fascinating. I think that'll really wake a lot of people up and go, oh, okay. So I can actually be part of the solution and and eat honey. It's actually a good thing. Yeah, well, eating honey, of course, supports the beekeepers. And, mm. and you know, contrary to a lot of thought, like a lot of farmers, um, beekeepers like their bees. Mm, they love they're really them. Attached to them, right? So, yeah. so they might not know them all by name, but, um, but, you know, they're attached to them. And so most beekeepers... Um, hate the thought of something happened to their bees and really wouldn't do anything that uh, would, would damage them because they like them. Mm, yeah. Um, and obviously you like your bees having a yeah, hive yeah. in the city. <laughs> um, can I ask, in the time that you were establishing your beehive, what was like your biggest challenge as a startup beekeeper? Oof, um Finding somewhere to put them, I think. Oh, okay. Because, look, it was interesting. You know, George, I, I talked about George before, my, my neighbour who um, who died a couple of weeks ago. Mm. Um, George George had specific ideas about beekeeping in the city and was very worried about me having bees near his bees. Mm-hmm. So he said to me, oh, he doesn't want me to have bees at my house. And so I said, I respected George's decision and started looking for somewhere I could put bees. And um, so at the time it was quite difficult because um, everybody sort of looked at me like I'd, I'd come from Mars when I asked them if I could put bees in their backyard. Um, and <laughs> started talking to community gardens and, you know, and the community gardens were looking at me like I'd gone completely crazy because bees are dangerous and sting everybody. And um, it took ages to find someone that would accept bees. And um, I eventually found a community garden that said yes. And... Um, and originally they gave me a, a part of the garden that was well away from anything. And I put the bees in there and um, started to get complaints from somebody who lived on the property. It was a huge, huge church property. Um, and somebody was renting a house on the property and was complaining about the bees. Mm-hmm. And um, anyway, this guy told me that, you know, he's, he had everything. His, his brother was allergic to bees. And I said, well, how often does your brother visit? And he said he doesn't. Um, <laughs> and I, I know. <laughs> and um, and then, then the bees were attacking him while he was washing his car. And 
like I was, I was very naive to, to bees, didn't really understand them that well at the time. And But what I did do, thankfully, is I said to him, look, can you write down for me when these things are happening so that I can understand it and try and work out why my bees are attacking you while you're washing your car because it doesn't mm. make sense. Um, anyway, it turned out that he was manufacturing all of this and, yeah. and he put down dates on his little diary before I'd even put the bees in place. Um, so... One of the, it's a long way of saying one of the biggest problems you'll have um, establishing bees is people's perception of what bees are going to do. Mm-hmm. So most people assume if you've got a beehive, they're going to be attacked. Yeah. And um, and unless you've got nasty bees, which does happen, um, then that's not going to happen. The neighbours won't even know you've got a beehive. There's not this huge cloud of bees sort of, you know, <laughs> like if, if you think about the old Roadrunner cartoons. Yeah, I was just thinking about that bees, exact so, thing. Yeah. Yeah, but you don't see that. There's not going to be a not going to be a swarm of bees um, attacking the neighbours, you know, mm. because what you get is like a stream of bees coming and going from the beehive, not this huge cloud that everybody, um, everybody imagines is going to yeah. happen. Yeah, yeah. Um, so... That's the first one is perception um, and and finding somewhere to put them where people can't see them and therefore aren't going to complain about them mm-hmm. because what will happen is if people can see the beehive, the same thing happens. Often people think they're going to be attacked by bees. Yeah. Um, but interestingly, going back to the community garden story, so so I, I had to move relocate the bees on that property, which is complicated. Just to go into it now, but you can't just up and move the beehive because mm. the bees get lost. Um, and so I, I agreed with the committee of the community garden to build a platform to put the bees on. So I built a carport mm-hmm. um, and put the bees on the carport. Oh, right. And so the carport meant the bees were elevated, which kept everybody happy. And, um, and the carport became the meeting place for the community garden. So they'd meet underneath the carport that had bees on it and had barbecues there and all this sort of stuff. And it was wonderful. It went on really, really well for about two years. And then the committee changed. And, um, and the committee became concerned about the bees attacking everybody. Mm-hmm. And so I've got a photo, I've got a photo of, um, of a party that the garden held basically underneath the beehives, there'd be like 50 people there having a barbecue. Mm. Um, and that was like two days before I had to remove the bees because they were too much of a risk to everybody. Right. So um, it, it, people's perception is the biggest problem. Yeah, so interesting. And all it would take is that committee change and yeah. someone to have a terrifying bee story when they got stung when they were five Yeah. and to push that onto your situation and bring the beehive down. Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's, it, that's the biggest problem is managing the perception of people and managing the fear that they have because mm. they have seen Roadrunner being chased down the road by bees. Yeah. Okay, good tips. Um, I want to ask one last question. Back to people who won't be getting their beehives. Uh, they've recognised that that's just not for them. Um, what is the next step we can take, all of us, in starting to champion wildflowers being planted like have you known any communities to have a great um result like with action groups or sending emails to a local mp or council member um because it just feels like we've still got a whole bunch of dead verges around sydney that could yeah i mean and i'm just talking about my city everyone listening would be thinking oh yeah i want to have a look at what's going on out there out my window you know and then how can we take effective action, I guess, in changing um, things and making things more hospitable to bees? Yeah, look, it's really interesting. It, it's, um, it's an interesting problem, you know. It's, it's, you, you hear about um, wonderful verge gardens that people have planted 
that the council comes along and rips out because they're worried about someone tripping over and injuring themselves on a tomato, you know? Um, yeah. it, it's just it's this weird disconnect between um, what's good and what's, uh, what's less likely to be a problem if, if lawyers get involved. Um, <laughs> So that's the, one of the biggest issues, right, is dealing with that. And so many councils have, have rules that prevent you from planting verges, which to me is complete insanity, mm. um, or prevent you from, you know, maybe turning the front verge into a field of wildflowers because everybody knows that wildflowers are dangerous and grass is safe. Um, <laughs> and, and, but it's true. Like, really, that's, that's, I mean, obviously I'm saying that tongue-in-cheek, but it's yeah. so true. It's a big problem. Um, so I think this is the biggest hard, the hardest thing is changing people's perceptions. And I don't know how you do that with councils mm. um, and how you get them to realise that um, things need to change. And, and for example, there's a very well-meaning council in Sydney who, um, who champions native bees and in particular, mm-hmm. a particular native bee, a social native bee, who are very anti-European honeybees. Right. Um, and I don't think they do themselves any favours because, in fact, they're so anti-European honeybees, they made a bee club who'd been there for, for many, many years, like we're talking 20 years or something, move out oh. um, because they were supporting European honeybees and they weren't good. So um, I think that, that somehow we need to convince everybody that we can work together and that, that you can have a, a happy medium of everything mm. um, and that people that are beekeepers for European honeybees love all the other bees as well. Um, that somehow we need to convince people to to change the way councils work, you know. Um, and I don't know how you do that apart from being noisy at council meetings or something. I, mm. I honestly don't know the answer. Um, the, 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 the council that I'm in here in Sydney, um, they, they use a lot of herbicides on their parks because mm. they like the parks to be green with nothing else growing in it. So as soon as some clover pops up, which everybody knows how dangerous clover is, um, they're out there with, with the herbicide killing it. And, you know, honestly, I don't think people would mind if there was clover in no. the, the beautiful green bowling greens that they've got for gardens. Yeah, I don't think people would mind. I think people would actually enjoy that. And so I, I hope for the day that um, you can walk through a park and it's actually got wildflowers growing in it mm. rather than buffalo grass. Yeah. And that's only something that will happen slowly. And I guess by writing to councils and making them aware of the fact that killing everything that moves isn't a good thing. And <laughs> yep. is, we'll know. keep trying. Well, and that's actually, all you can do. It's all you yeah. can do. Slightly little steps, it'll get, the message will get across. Exactly. It's come a long way since I started beekeeping. Mm. You know, people are now much more aware of bees and people go, what can I do to save the bees? So people are thinking about it um, and somehow we need to make that um, uh, politically beneficial so that, um, that our, our politicians, local and, um, and um, on all levels, mm. see the benefit in it and yeah. think, hey, we can change this. Yeah, nice. And um, just so we can uh, be clear, uh, keeping European honeybees doesn't in any way endanger native bee populations, correct? Well, okay. You had to Ooh. open that can of words. Oh, okay. Um, look, it, it's very interesting. There's... there's yeah. Lots of research being done, and um, there's a researcher in Western Australia called um, Kit Pendergrass who does lots of research in native bees, and a lot of it is um, is inconclusive or very hard to apply to all parts of, of the country, okay. um, and that's the problem. So, you know, Kit's done a lot of research where she's looked at native bees and whether, whether European honeybees are impacting native bees or not, and some of her research says that it is and other research says that it isn't. 
Mm-hmm. So I think, and a lot of that's around feral bees. So when you allow your, your managed beehive to swarm and those feral bees go and invade some part of, of the natural environment that something else might occupy. So um, I, I guess the, the short answer is um, it, they may, but we have a lot of things growing here in, in Sydney or in other parts of the country that means there's lots of forage available for our insects. Um, we need to plant more of that. But we also need to, if we're going to choose to become a European honeybee keeper, you need to manage those European honeybees so the bees don't swarm, or if they do swarm, catch that swarm and put it into a beehive rather than letting it escape out into the environment. Got it. Um, that's the difference, I think. Mm-hmm. Great. Doug, what a um, learning journey. Thank you. I think we've packed quite a bit into a little hour there on bees. Uh, obviously, your book is widely available around the world and uh, people from all over the world able to do your courses as well? Um, look, we're actually pivoting that way. The courses are face-to-face or have been face-to-face. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously, what's going on in the world at the moment, we're having to revisit that, particularly yep. at the moment. Um, the trouble is that, that I believe very much in hands-on. Mm. It's hard to do the hands-on via Zoom. So yeah. um, that's the biggest problem at the moment is working out how to provide people with hands-on help um, and hands-on experience. They can't just get from watching someone do it. Mm. So that's the, the answer is maybe. Maybe. Yeah, well, stay tuned. How about that? Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Doug. And uh, I'm very, um, I'm a huge fan of your book. I learned so much um, reading it on the weekend. And I think uh, it would just be great for everybody, whether you're going to keep bees or not, to get to know more about our gorgeous little friends. Well, there you have it. Thank you so much for tuning in today. I hope you enjoyed today's interview. And I want to remind you that you can come join me on social, on Instagram, at Life or one word, or my personal Instagram, uh, at underscore Alex with two X's, Stuart, S-T-U-A-R-T. On Facebook, you can find us at LowToxLife. Uh, and of course, lowtoxlife.com. And if you want additional support and community around leading a low-tox life, I can't recommend a better thing to do than to come join us at the Low Tox Club for just $49 Australian per year, which is about $29.30 US, about €27 and about £25. You get a stack of club member perks and the benefit of a beautiful private Facebook community. So check out the website, lowtoxlife.com, hit the explore tab and you'll see join the Lotox Club as your very first option there. I hope to see you in there. If not, I will see you in our wider community sometime soon. Thanks again for tuning in.